at Winona Friends for something like 12 years, right? Yeah, 12, 12 years. years. And his dad actually pastored right before him, right? Yeah. He, so he took over for his dad. That must be <laughs> interesting. So anyways, so I'm going to invite him and, uh, to preach the sermon today. Well, as St. Francis said to Brother Dominic, when he met him on the road, on the way to Assisi, hi. <laughs> it's good to be with you this morning. It's actually been a great weekend with Bethel Friends Church. I, I, as Pastor Steve said, I was able to preach last night in the Saturday evening service, then spend some time with one of the Sunday school classes this morning talking about Evangelical Friends Mission, and, and it's a joy to be back with you guys now for this service. Um, was able to bring my, my wife, and then you saw three of our four kids uh, running out of here, uh, which is great too, because depending on how far I have to travel to preach, they don't always get to come with me, but we just live down in Damascus, Ohio, so I'm um, very thankful that Karen and the kids could be with us uh, this weekend as well, and very excited when Pastor Steve asked me to enter into this sermon series that he has been doing with you on the book of Romans when he shared with me his plan for preaching through the book of Romans, I told him how excited I was about that, to see him preaching expositorily through the books of the Bible like that, and grateful for an opportunity to talk with you this morning from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn there with me, Romans chapter 3, and we're going to pick up where Pastor Steve ended last week in verse 21. I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version. And this is what we read. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of God. Amen? In December of 1932, a Philadelphia magazine held a contest for its readers in which they offered a cash prize for the best submission in answer to the question, what are the two sweetest words in the English language? That was it. No, no more rules, no more, no more description. Just, you send us your submissions, we'll pick a winner. What are the two sweetest words in the English language? Well, they received several responses to their question, and I don't know what all of the responses 
were, but I can, I can guess what some of the responses might have been. I can guess that at least one of those responses, probably to the question, what are the two sweetest words in the English language, somebody probably submitted the words, I do, don't you think? Because many of us stood in a church like this and we said those words to our wives or our wives said those words to us on the day we got married. So those are sweet words. Those are, those are good words. I do. I can imagine that maybe some people thought back to childhood, to someone who had encouraged them, and they found power in the two words, well done, or good job. Those are powerful words, aren't they? My oldest boy, Henry, had baseball tryouts this week. As soon as he was done, he ran over, and the first question he asked, how did I do, Dad? So those are powerful words. Well done, good job. Well, none of those submissions won the contest. The contest was won by a woman named Dorothy Parker. And are you ready for her entry? The two sweetest words in the English language, her answer, check and closed. Which I suppose to the person receiving the check is sweet words, but I read something the other day by Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher of the previous century, that leads me to believe he would not have agreed with Dorothy Parker's submission, because this is what he wrote in one of his biblical commentaries. He said, there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than just these two words, but now. This passage that we read this morning begins with those two words, doesn't it? But now. And the reason that Martin Lloyd-Jones found such strength and such power in those two words is because here in Romans 3.21, those two words, but now, offer a turning point in this great book of the Bible. Because up to this point, in the first three chapters of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul's message has been fairly negative. And what I mean by that is for three chapters, Paul has been laboring to help us to see the difficult but undeniable truth about ourselves that we are sinners. That's been the primary message of the first three chapters of the book of Romans. We've rebelled against God. We've broken his law. We've failed to live up to his moral excellence. We have traded the goodness and glory of God for lesser things. We have sinned. The very gifted writer Frederick Buechner once said, the gospel is bad news before it can be good news. And he's right, isn't he? The gospel begins with bad news. And the bad news is, my sin has separated me from God. My sin has separated me from the one who created me to know him and live in relationship with him. And I can't undo that. I can't make myself good enough to undo what my sin has done. I can't make myself righteous, in other words. That's the word that the Apostle Paul will use here in Romans chapter 3. And we may ignore that truth. We may try to forget that truth. We may try to convince ourselves that we don't really believe that truth about ourselves. But deep down, we all know that it is true about ourselves. And we all know that it's true about ourselves because we know that we can't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's. I cannot even live up to my own tepid standards. So I know, I know that I don't live up to God's holy standards. 
Deep down, we know that what the Apostle Paul has been telling us here in the book of Romans is true. That what he said in Romans 3.10 is true about us. There is no one righteous. No, not even one. That's the bad news. And for three chapters so far in the book of Romans, that's what Paul has been focusing on. For the first three chapters of this book, he shines a giant spotlight onto our souls, into our hearts, so that we can see ourselves rightly. Last week, I was uh, preaching down in Cincinnati at one of our newest churches, and I was with them on Saturday night and then again with them on Sunday morning, and so since Cincinnati is a little further drive than Poland, I ended up staying in a, in a motel while I was down there, and in the, in the motel bathroom, they had one of those round mirrors on a retractable arm, you know, that on one side shows you your reflection in the, in the normal size, and then if you flip the mirror around, it shows you your reflection magnified many times over. You know what I'm talking about? And I looked into that mirror, the, the first side, the side that shows you your reflection in its, in, in its uh, normal size. And I, and I looked at my face, as I happen to do sometimes when I look into a mirror, and I, I thought to myself, okay, it's, it's not great, you know, but it's what I got to work with. At least it's not hideous, right? Thank you for not saying anything. And then I flipped the mirror around, though, to look in the side that magnified my face and every blemish and every imperfection and everything that's wrong is just there, front and center, so much so that I started to feel a little bad for my wife because she's married to this face. But for three chapters in the book of Romans, that's what Paul has been doing. He has been turning our hearts and our minds to the law of God because by looking in the law of God, we find it like that great magnifying mirror showing us the true condition of our hearts and ourselves. That's the bad news. But the Apostle Paul has been focusing on the bad news not because he wants to revel in our sin, and not because he wants us to wallow in shame and guilt, just the opposite. In fact, he has focused our hearts and minds on the true condition of our hearts, because like a good physician of the soul, he wants us to understand the diagnosis. He wants us to know our true condition. He wants us, in other words, to acknowledge the bad news so that we're finally ready and able to receive the incredibly beautiful good news of the gospel. And so verse 20, which Steve ended on last week, sums up the bad news for us. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, Paul says. Can't work our way there, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The, the law is like that mirror that shows us who we really are. That's the bad news. Now, here's the good news. Verse 21. But now. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe. 
I don't know that there's any other passage in the entire New Testament that helps us to see and understand the good news of the gospel any more clearly than we find in the passage that I read to you this morning. In fact, I told the group last night, the great reformer Martin Luther said this is the most important passage in the Bible. He said that the faith of the church rises and falls on Romans 3, 21 through 31. And Steve's letting me preach it. Can you believe that? There's certain words in the book of Romans that we need to know if we're going to understand the message that the apostle wants us to hear. And I don't have time to unpack all of those words for you. And I'm sure that Pastor Steve has already begun to define some of those words for you. But one of the most important words in the letter of Romans is a word that Paul will use over and over and over again. The word righteous or righteousness. What does Paul mean when he talks about the righteousness of God being manifested apart from the law? Well, there's, there's entire libraries that have been written about what exactly the righteousness of God means. But for simplicity's sake, let's define the righteousness of God like this together. The righteousness of God is the act by which God brings people into a right relationship with himself. That's what Paul's talking about when he talks about the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is the act by which God brings people into a right relationship with himself. So he's been focusing on the bad news. We are sinners. Our sin has separated us from God. Our sin has broken our relationship with God. Our sin has made us unrighteous. And the question that is before us, that he, was, that he wants us to, to see and understand with clarity in this passage, is the answer to the question, how can unrighteous people enter into a right relationship with a righteous God? How can those who are sinners enter into a right relationship with the God who is holy? And the answer that human beings have been giving to that question in their fallenness throughout the millennia is the same. No matter where they're from, no matter what language they speak, no matter what era of human history they have lived in, when human beings have been confronted with that question, how can I be made right with God? How can I be made righteous? The answer that they give in their fallenness is that I must work my way into righteousness. I have to make myself righteous through my own straining efforts. I need to do enough good works. I need to participate in enough religious rites. I need to give enough money. I need to attend enough worship services. I need to pray enough, read the Bible enough, fast enough, give enough, suffer enough, achieve enough, be enough. And if I do enough for long enough, then maybe, maybe I can appease God and somehow convince him to accept me. That's the answer that most human beings will give to the to the question that Paul has posed and that's the way that Paul lived his life for much of his life isn't it Paul was a Pharisee he was a man who worked very very hard in an effort to make himself righteous he'd given his life to obeying the law to participating in all of the religious rites he knew the law and he tried very, very hard to make himself righteous until he realized that he never could. That he'd been running on a spiritual treadmill all those years. 
And you run on a treadmill and you work and you work and you work and you sweat and you sweat and you sweat. And then you look around and realize, I'm not going anywhere. And one day on the road to a place called Damascus, God knocked Paul off of his horse with the good news of the gospel. And from that day forward, he no longer tried to work his way into righteousness. He didn't have to because he had received the gift of righteousness by God's grace. What does he say here in verse 21? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. We don't achieve it by obeying the law or by working hard enough or by doing enough. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through what? Faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Friends, that's the good news that changes everything. We can be made right with God. We can enter into a new relationship with the God who created us. And it's not by working ourselves into that position, but by receiving a gift given to those who receive it by faith. I read something not long ago by a man named Timothy Paul Jones, a story about his own family that to me illustrates what Paul is talking about here in Romans 3, 21 through 31, about as good as anything that I've ever heard. Timothy Paul Jones tells a story about he and his wife's relationship with their young adopted daughter. They had adopted a young girl at eight years old, and she had come from a very difficult and painful past. See, not only had this little girl been given over to adoption by her birth parents, but at some point in her early life, she had also been adopted by a family who, after a couple of years, decided that they wanted to give her back to the state. For whatever reason, they never really integrated this, this little girl into their family of biological children. They had several biological children, and then they had this adopted daughter. They never really integrated her into their family. And so after having her in their home for two years, they, they dissolved the adoption. And so you can imagine the baggage that this little girl carried with her, this sense of, of not being worth very much, this sense of, of not being good enough. And that's when Timothy Paul Jones adopted this little eight-year-old girl into their family. And one of the painful memories that she shared with her new family was that every year when her adopted family would take a vacation to Disney World, they would take their biological children with them, but they would leave this adopted daughter at home with a family friend. And so this little eight-year-old girl had seen all the pictures of Cinderella's castle, and she'd read all about the rides and the parades and the costumes and the characters, but she had never in her life walked through the gates of the Magic Kingdom herself. And so when her new adopted family found out about this, her past, they immediately began making plans to take her to Disney World. But something happened that they weren't uh, expecting. As the date for the trip grew closer and closer, the behavior of their adopted daughter grew worse and worse. In the months leading up to the trip, she stole things, she lied, she said horrible, disrespectful things to her parents. She rebelled in every conceivable way. So a couple of days before they were to leave and make their way down to Florida, Timothy Paul Jones, her new adopted father, took her aside and put, put her on his lap. And she knew that he wanted to talk to her about her behavior. But before he could even say anything, she looked up at him, tears rolling down her face. And she said, I know what you're going to do. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? 
Now, he could have said, you're right. You don't deserve to go to Disney World. The behavior you had is so, so terrible. If you don't shape up, you don't get things better, then we're leaving you home and we're going on our own. He could have said that. He didn't say that. Instead, he asked her a question. He said, is this trip something we're doing as a family? She nodded her head. He said, are you a part of our family? She nodded her head. He said, then we won't leave you behind. Now, he said, there's going to be some consequences for your behavior as of late, but you're a part of our family, and we're not leaving without you. Now, let me read to you what he writes next. He says, I'd like to say that her behaviors grew better after that moment. They didn't. Her choices pretty much spiraled out of control at every hotel and rest stop all the way to Lake Buena Vista. Still, we headed to Disney World on the day we had promised, and it was a typical Disney day. Overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, and lots of lines mingled with just enough manufactured magic to consider maybe going again someday. In our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times. But her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, held her, and asked, So how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes and snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. After a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It was because... I'm yours. It wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. That, my friends, is the message of Romans 3, 21 through 31. Righteousness is not something we earn by being good. It's not a reward that God gives to those who have tried harder than others or done enough good to outweigh the bad. Righteousness is a gift that we receive by being his. And that, my friends, is good, good news. So let me point out to you this morning three implications of that good news here in this passage from the Apostle Paul. Because we know that what he has told us is true. Righteousness is a gift by grace through faith to all who will receive it. These three things are true about this gospel. Number one, in the gospel, there are no distinctions. Now that comes straight out of Paul's words in verse 22. For there is no distinction. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Well, he means a couple of things. He means, first of all, that there is no distinction in terms of our deepest problem as human beings. Every person, no distinction, every person on this planet has the same primary dilemma. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter if you're man or woman, white collar or blue collar or no collar. It doesn't matter if you're urban, suburban or rural. It doesn't matter any of these things. We all have the same central problem. Look at the text, end of verse 22. For there is no distinction, Paul says, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, that word all sounds really inclusive, doesn't it? 
all have sinned. You know what that word means in the original Greek? It means all. <laughs> all means all. For we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all been separated from God. We all have the same problem. No distinction, no exception. But there's also no distinction then in terms of the remedy that we need for our problem. And Paul gives us that next. End of verse 22. For there is no distinction, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24. And are justified. There's another one of those words we need to know. The word justified means declared righteous. And are declared righteous by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that's for everybody, right? We all have the same problem, no distinction, and we all need the same solution. We all need the same remedy. Do you know what that means? That means every single person in your life needs Jesus. No distinction, no exceptions. Every person walking this planet desperately needs the gospel. It doesn't matter how much they seem to have it all together. It doesn't matter how successful they may be in their chosen career. It doesn't matter how much money they have in the bank or how much education they may have or how much fun they are to be around or how nice they may be or how much you may like them. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and there's only one remedy to that universal human dilemma and that is the grace of God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. No distinction, no exception. I learned something about the truth of grace when I was in seminary from one of my professors, but probably not in the way that you would expect. It was Greek class. We were first-year Greek students, and we had a professor that had a reputation on campus for being a really tough professor, tough grader. The rumor was, if you want to get a good grade in this guy's class, you have to work really, really hard. Unfortunately, evidently none of us in that first year Greek class took the rumors seriously enough. Because when we had our first exam in that, in that class, the entire class bombed this test. I mean, we just blew it, all of us. We just failed this test. And I remember getting that exam back and looking at that sheet of paper, and it's just covered in red slash marks, right? One after another, all of my mistakes, everything I'd done wrong, just, just red, red, red. And then at the top of that exam, he had written, again, in big red marker, a giant F. I had failed that exam. But then the professor had taken his red marker, and he had put a line through the F, and he had written instead C minus and he made only one notation next to that, a word in Greek, charis. Now, I obviously had to go look that up because I didn't know any Greek. And so I did. And what I discovered is that the word Greek, or the, the, the word charis in Greek means grace. He was teaching me something. 
It was teaching me something about grace. I had earned an F. That's what I deserved. That's what my work deserved. It deserved an F. I got instead a C minus, and that was grace, charis. But even that illustration falls short of really pointing to this, the depth of grace that Paul is describing for us here in Romans chapter 3. Because it's not simply the case that God took our big red F of our sin and just took a marker and crossed it out and said, well, let's just forget about that. Let's just pretend that didn't happen. That's not what happened. He did not do what my professor did. God cannot do that. He cannot just ignore our sin. He can't just forget about it. He can't just sweep it under the rug as though it didn't happen because God is righteous. God is just. God is holy. And so he can't just pretend that it didn't happen. And that's not what he did. God didn't just take a big red marker and cross out our F and replace it with a C. He did so much more than that. Look again at the text. This is what God did. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There's another one of those words that Paul uses, propitiation. What that word means? It means to make atonement for, to satisfy, to, in essence, pay the penalty for. God didn't just take our F and draw through it and say, let's forget about that and move on. It's not a big deal. God can't do that. He is just. He is holy. He is righteous. He didn't do that. He didn't just cross out our F with a big red marker. You know what he did? He covered over it with the red blood of Jesus Christ. He sent a propitiation who said, I will pay the penalty in full for that. I will make satisfaction for that. I will atone for that. And Jesus came and gave his life so that the F could be covered over by his blood and we could be declared righteous. In the great exchange of the cross, all our sin given to Christ and his righteousness given to you. This is yours, he says. It's a gift. You didn't earn it. It's a gift. Not because you're good, but because you're mine. That's what God did for us in Jesus Christ. One of the most powerful, beautiful verses in the book of Romans to me is Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He didn't wait for us to make ourselves righteous. He didn't wait for us to get to a point where we, we somehow believed that we earned it. While we were still sinners, Paul says, Christ died for us. You know, to truly illustrate the depth of grace that we find here in Romans chapter 3, you know what my Greek professor would have had to have done? He would have had to walk up to me at the beginning of that exam, tapped me on the shoulder and said, you can't pass this exam. You're going to fail it. So get up and let me sit down and I'll take the exam for you. Because that's what Jesus did for us. 
our sin given to him. His righteousness given to us. No distinction. We all have the same problem. We all need the same solution. In the gospel, there's no distinction. Here's the second thing. In the gospel, then, there is no boasting. That also comes straight from Paul's words, verse 27. Then what becomes of boasting, Paul says, after describing this gospel to us and how we can be declared righteous before God? What becomes of our boasting? Well, it's excluded. It's gone. It's done away with. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. In the gospel, there's no distinctions. And in the gospel, there's no boasting because we don't have anything to boast about. How foolish would it have been of me to have received that test back with an F crossed out and a passing grade in its place to run around campus holding it over my head and saying, look what I did. Look what I accomplished. Look how smart I am. Look how knowledgeable I am. It would have been foolish because I hadn't earned anything, right? I take that back. I did earn something. I earned an F. I got a passing grade, and that was grace. And when you live in grace, it takes away the occasion for all boasting. You know what that means? It means we're finally free to live lives of gratitude. When we live in the gospel, we are finally free to live lives of gratitude. Because we don't have to look to ourselves anymore for our hope. We look to someone greater than ourselves. And we're free to just say, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for saving a sinner like me. Thank you, Lord, for changing my life. I didn't deserve this. I didn't earn this. You've done this. Thank you, Father, for welcoming the prodigal home with a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, a robe on his shoulders, and a party in the barn. Thank you, God, for this indescribable grace. No boasting, only gratitude. And that's a wonderful way to live, friends. It's a wonderful way to live because finally we're free now to, to know that we don't have to prove anything anymore. Finally, we're free to stop playing the comparison game with other people. I wasted so much of my life comparing myself. Do I match up enough? Have I done more? Am I good as? And then the gospel frees us from that. You don't have to compare yourself to them. Just look to Jesus, where your hope is found. You don't have to live a life of boasting anymore. The gospel takes all that away so that you are free to boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ. In the gospel, there is no distinction. Number two, in the gospel, there is no boasting. And then here's number three. In the gospel, there are no boundaries. No boundaries. Look at, the, look at uh, verse 28 with me and let's finish out the passage together. Paul goes on, For we hold that one is justified, declared righteous by faith, apart from works of the law, which refers to the law of Moses, okay? The law which God gave to the Jewish people. Verse 29. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Gentiles are non-Jews. Yes, Paul says. Of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So what is, what is this part of Romans 3.20? What, what, is, what is Paul talking about now? Circumcision, uncircumcision, Jews, 
Gentiles. How does this fit with this incredible gospel that he's been talking about? Well, one of the burdens that the apostle has in the book of Romans is the truth that so many of his fellow Jews have rejected Messiah Jesus. Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. Paul was a Jewish man, and he's concerned about the Jewish people, and yet he recognizes that so many of the Jewish people to whom Jesus came were not putting their trust in him as the Messiah, as the Savior. And so how does he make sense of this? What does he do with this? Because remember, he lived so much of his life trying to obey the law of Moses, the way to righteousness. That's the way he used to think. And circumcision was a religious rite that distinguished the Jewish people from all of their pagan Gentile neighbors. And yet now, here are all these non-Jewish people, these Gentiles, who are saying, I want to put my hope in Jesus. And Paul asks a question of himself here in Romans 3 at the end of this passage. Is God the God of Jews only? Those that have the law? Those that are circumcised? And he answers his own question. No, he says, but also of the Gentiles. In other words, Paul, Paul wants us to realize this truth. Now, we hear it, and we might not think much of it, but you've got to understand, when Paul wrote this, this was a radical thing for him to say. This gospel, this Jesus, this righteousness, it's not only for those who have the law. It's not only those who have gone through the religious, religious rites of the Jewish people, such as circumcision. It's for anybody who will receive it by faith, no boundaries. The doors of grace were just swung wide open and said, there's only one way in, but if you want to come in that way, you can come, no matter who you are and no matter what you've done. God intends for the good news of Jesus to be proclaimed, in other words, to all people, every language, every nation, Every tribe, no boundaries. And that's one of the reasons I love what I get to do with the FCER and I got to share with the Sunday school class this morning some of the ways that God is expanding our boundaries. EFCER is a, a partnership of about 100 churches, just under 100 churches all over the eastern part of the United States. And 21 of those churches are non-English speaking churches. We have churches made up of people from Mexico and from El Salvador and from Rwanda and Uganda and Congo and, and Bhutan and Nepal who have come here to the United States and they're making disciples among their people and they're creating churches and they're a part of our family of friends. The boundaries of God's grace opening to all people. Today, this Sunday, just like every other Sunday in Eastern Region, worship services are being held in seven different languages. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that good? That's the kingdom of God. Because the gospel threw the doors open and said there's only one way in, but anybody can come. Last Sunday, I was down in Cincinnati, as I said, worshiping with a group of refugees from the Democratic Republic of Congo. They, you guys have a beautiful sanctuary. They worship in a musty, dirty cellar in the uh, basement of the pastor's apartment building. And they fill that place with joy. The week before that, I was up in Cleveland at a, an Anglo church plant, but they meet in a garage. They put space heaters. It was cold a couple of weeks ago. Put space heaters all over there. And their church is mostly made up of people who live in the inner city of Cleveland who are coming out of some kind of addiction. But they found freedom in Jesus. 
week before that, I was down in Columbus working, uh, worshiping with some folks from Africa who don't speak English, and I don't speak Swahili, but we worship the same Jesus because we'd all been saved by the same gospel. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are no boundaries. And it's not just here in the United States. As a partnership of churches working through EFM, we have 23 missionary families serving in 15 different countries all over the world. In some uh, cases, serving among people who have never heard the name Jesus before. But they're making disciples, they're raising up leaders, and they're planting churches. Because in the gospel, there's no boundaries. There's only one way in, but anybody can come. And that's possible because of churches like Bethel Friends and what you do in your partnership with us in this global ministry that God has given to us. Men and women from every nation, tribe, language, and people worshiping the God who gives righteousness as a gift of grace by faith. All because of those two little words that we started with, but now. But now, Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Amen? Amen. Colossians 1.21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Amen? Ephesians 5.8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Amen? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Those two words are so much better than check and closed. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, this morning we thank you for the gospel that has changed our lives. A gospel that we received freely. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. But out of the abundance of your love, you sent a Savior. Jesus, you took our sins. And you gave us the gift of righteousness. We thank you, Father, for this reminder from your word today of how deep and how great and how beautiful the good news really 